Two minutes to the news at 10 o'clock. Uh, Deb Rabitsky is going to be on the radio after that news. Good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. Steve, I'm just looking out the window at my boss's hair flying about in this strong wind. Uh... Should have done it, really, shouldn't she? <laughs> Should have tied it back or something rather than being all dishevelled in public. But before you go thinking I'm talking about hair on the program, I'm not. I'm talking about, or I'm not, I've got a pilot in. This is really exciting. An mm. ex-Emirates pilot. He's only recently retired. Right. And he's going to give us the inside goss on planes and the airline industry. It's going to be great. And I'd love people to call if you've ever wanted to ask a pilot something, mm -hmm. but were too embarrassed to ask or didn't know one, please call, get in early, one three hundred three zero three four six eight. Is this going to put people off flying? I hope not. But I do wonder because there are. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to hold back. This guy's retired. He he's not under the thumb. He doesn't have to worry about getting in trouble with he the company that's working like for. He, and he is. He's going to come on and he's going to tell it like it is. Okay. Are you, you going to ask him things like which airlines would he fly with and not fly with? I wasn't going to, but I will now. Yeah. I'll put that to him. That's always a little bit enlightening. Yes. I, I have taken advice from people in the past. They go, "Oh no, we wouldn't fly with that person, yeah. that, that airline." So I I'm would going, actually okay. really want to know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now that I. I've said it, now you want to know. Uh, all right, so on the radio between 10 and 11. That's right. Thank you, Deb. Coming up soon. Deb Rabitsky, uh, up next on the radio, and that's about it from me. On your radio and online, this is ABC Ballarat and Southwest Victoria. Five minutes past 10. Debbie Rabitsky keeping Gavin McGrath's seat warm for him on this chilly winter's day. And wow, how windy is it? so windy. In fact, the Bureau has issued a severe weather warning for damaging and destructive winds for our area, which led me to wonder whether any flights might have been delayed from Melbourne Airport because of the wind. None have, as far as I'm aware, which then made me wonder, well, how bad does the wind need to be such that flights are affected? And what about storms? Can we fly in storms? So I've got an expert in. We've got a pilot on the program now to answer my questions. James Nixon is a recently retired Emirates pilot, which is great because he's going to be able to talk about planes and about the airline industry, but without being worried about getting in trouble from his boss. But this isn't just about me. If you have any questions you've always wanted to ask a pilot, 1300 303 468 is the number with a question you've always wanted to ask about planes or flying. You can also text on 0467 842 No question is too silly. Give me a call. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. 1300-303-468. James Nixon is on the line. Hi, James. G'day, Deb. How are you? Oh, sorry, Captain James Nixon. <laughs> Not anymore. Really? No, Do you after, drop that? You leave, yeah, you drop it as a, uh, the real pilot. Oh, that's interesting. Only the Air Force pilots keep it on forever. Oh, because doctors so keep they, their title after they retire, don't they? Yeah, they, they sit around in men's clubs saying, G'day, Captain, how are you? Pass the port, <laughs> would you? But that doesn't occur to airline pilots. Once you leave, 35 days after you left, you are unlicensed. Wow, there you go. At the end of your career. And so you were flying for Emirates up until recently, flying the huge A380s. They're the biggest passenger aircraft, aren't they? They sure are. In fact, my record is 618 passengers and uh, 28 crew. Wow. And is um, in the world of planes, is it a bit like boys and their toys where it's like, well, my plane's bigger than your plane? Yeah, that's pretty much what it's like. Um, <laughs> because every pilot you speak to will tell you that his plane or their... There's a lot of women out there. Now, their plane is the most 
special and the best plane in the world for whatever you're flying right now. But when you're, when you're actually flying the big planes, uh, you're looking out the window a lot of the time. And so I used to be a 727 pilot for ANSET, and that was one of my favourites because they look so, so good. And uh, I used to like looking at them, even from the A380. So bringing me to my first question why I've got you on, how bad does the wind need to be before you can't take off anymore? Well, the reason a lot of pilots are also sailors is that we need wind to fly and we like to take off and land in, into wind. And so wind isn't really an issue. The, my limit, I think, is about uh, 60 knots headwind. That's 120 kilometres an hour wow. landing into wind. I think I landed in, uh, in Hong Kong one day in a typhoon with up to 54 knots crosswind, which was uh, quite exciting. Mm. Um, but we try to, try to land into wind as much as possible. So that doesn't really stop us. What stops us is visibility. And uh, in a case like the typhoon, the airport's shutting down. Because in a place like Hong Kong, as you can appreciate, they get typhoons every year. They have a lot of problems with um, freight containers coming loose and flying around the airport and uh, little cars being tipped over. So the whole airport goes into a special kind of lockdown and they put a wire mesh screen over every single piece of glass window on the whole airport. Wow. So those sort of things affect... The, um, the ground structures, but of course the airplanes operate in wind all the time. Up in the air, we're, we're flying around in winds of up to 200 kilometres an hour all the time. So when you're taking off or landing into the wind, obviously it's ideal to have it into a headwind because that's what gives the, the plane its lift. But what if the wind is dropping, if it's gusty and it's up and down and up and down? Yes, well, um, the Airbus has a nifty feature for that uh, called Ground Speed Mini. And that says that we want to make sure that if the wind stops, that there's still enough wind going over the wings so the wings won't stall. And so for that reason, uh, the speed, the noise goes up and down. When you're in the cabin as a passenger, it sounds quite horrible as the engines race up and they pull up again, oh. up and down all the way during the approach. But what they're doing is making sure that the footprint of the aeroplane over the ground is a safe speed. So if there is a gust of wind that falls away, that the wind can the wind can still operate. So that's happening automatically. You're not in control of that. Not unless you take the auto thrust out. Okay. And uh, these days, everyone uses the auto thrust because the computers on something like an Airbus they update five, uh, twenty times a second. Your brain they could do that, up. though, couldn't it, James? Uh, well, <laughs> yes, it used to. That's why I've retired. Yes. <laughs> we've, we've, got a, we've got a question through on the text line. It's zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. Or if you want to give us a call and ask Captain um, ex-Captain James Nixon, one three hundred three zero three four six eight. This question says, have you ever attempted a barrel roll in an A380? No, no. <laughs> really? Uh, in, fact, in fact, airline pilots are different creatures. I spent 31 years flying. And uh, the creatures that uh, the passengers like are the ones that don't spill the coffee. Now, your producer, Mark Smith, who's one of the world's best aviation photographers, and I don't know if you know, he is a pilot himself. I do know that, Ask, yes. ask him about those sort of upside-down stuff, not me. I've never spilled the coffee, and my passengers are very happy about that. I have met a commercial pilot that works for one of the major airlines, though. He told me when he was training, so when they were back in the days of little light aircraft that just hold two people, they did get up to some pretty radical stuff. There, there involved a, pretty of, major G-forces. That's right. One of the uh, one of the classes is called uh, Introduction to Incipient Spin, and mine happened over Backers Marsh, the old fantastic Backers Marsh training area, on a hot, bumpy summer afternoon. 
And that's where I left my stomach. Wow. <laughs> it really is violent uh, and not the sort of thing that I really like. But some pilots love that sort of stuff. They don't tend to usually make it to the airlines. They're more like fighter pilots, those sort of guys. Uh, but the people like me who just like to not spill the coffee, uh, we, we get in the airlines eventually. So speaking of turbulence, do you know when it's coming when you're flying along? Uh, there's different types. Clear air turbulence, we do. And it's very easy to, to understand. It's just imagine a fast-flowing creek and there's rocks in the bottom of the creek and boulders. And you can see how the water moves around the boulders and it cavitates in behind well, it's doing that all the time with the air flying over the rocks and boulders of the world and the buildings and the mountains. And so close to the ground, we have what's called mechanical turbulence and we, can, we know exactly where that's coming from. So if I'm coming to land in Heathrow at runway 27 left at Heathrow in London, there's huge hangars on the bottom left-hand corner of the airport as I'm looking at the airport coming into land. And if the wind is from the southwest, then the wind coming over those hangars is really, really turbulent for the approach. So the passengers are almost screaming because it's so bumpy. Mm. But when it gets down to the airport itself, it's four kilometres long the runway and it's really smooth. And you can pull off a really smooth landing after a really bumpy approach and they think, wow, that guy's really good at flying. Mm. Not at all. It's just that we've moved out of the mechanical turbulence area. Uh. So we have mechanical turbulence and then we also have turbulence up in the sky mm. called clear air turbulence. And that's usually associated with um, different types of air masses. So I'm one of those passengers that's almost screaming as it's bump, the plane's bumping around as we come into land. Do I have cause to be worried by that bumping and turbulence as you're coming in? Yes, it oh. proves that you're human, Deb, <laughs> uh, because what we're doing is unnatural. And, um, you know, so people say, oh, I'll get a bit scared flying. So you should. You know, it's your primeval urge to be in control. Mm. And uh, if I ask a few of your friends, they might tell me that you are a bit of a control freak. <laughs> yeah, and I am. But what's the likelihood are. of something going wrong in that circumstance, though? Um, well, there's always, always uh, a likelihood of something going wrong, and that's what we're planning for. And so you want an airline that's got good um, procedures and adherence to procedures by the crew so that you're always expecting something to go wrong at the most inopportune moment. No pilot flying an airliner today thinks they're going to land at the airport of their destination. All we want to do is put the airplane 50 feet above the touchdown zone, above the, above the piano keys, and put the airplane in the touchdown zone ready to land. And we won't make a decision to land right up until the time that we've actually decided to land. And we can actually hit the ground and still keep going around if we're not happy. As in your tyres can touch the ground and you can take off again? Yep, you can do that. <gasps> Have and you ever done that? Yep, and you do that in the simulator all the time, every six months. Wow. But you'll actually do, go around from even 10 or 15 feet because say someone drives a truck out on the runway or another plane crosses the intersection uh, and they've been told to hold short. So the controller so what, might just say, go what, around. So you'll just, just power up and go around. So what's happened to you the time that you've had to do it? Uh, usually it's just their, it's their traffic controllers. In fact, my record is going around twice off the approach, the same approach. One approach, two go-rounds into Los Angeles because a little plane in front of us uh, was a bit slow and we were catching him. And when they finally decided we could probably make it, but just as we were about to come over the fence, he missed the exit for the taxiway. And he said, oh, I'm just going to go up to the next taxiway. Well, the controller said, well, 
go around. So we went around from about, um, I suppose, about 50 feet, 100 feet. Wow, okay. Yeah. Let's get through a few questions that have been coming through Go on the text ahead. line 0467 822. Linda from Portland asks, regarding visibility, how can you fly at night but not with fog? Right, well, that's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> with an instrument-rated pilot, which is somebody who's done an instrument rating and is flying solely with reference to instruments, they are flying on instruments all the time. So is the aeroplane. So the aeroplane, when you're coming in to do an instrument landing approach into any airport, it's locked onto the landing beam and it's also doing its own thing in terms of doing a landing off instruments. But by law, some airports aren't upgraded enough. The quality of the airport's equipment is not good enough for us to land down to and along the runway solely with reference to instruments. So in most places in, in, in Australia... You get down to 200 feet, you need to be able to see five kilometres when you're below 200... uh, Sorry, 800 metres below 200 feet so that you can actually land the plane manually. But quite often, uh, you you can leave the autopilot in all the way to the ground. But autopilot Um, can land the flight, can you... The plane, oh, yes. can it? The autopilot can land the plane, oh, as I said before, it's updating for? 20 times a second. So it's, it can do it. But the only problem is if someone in a catering truck comes near the runway or someone's towing another aeroplane out of the hangar, that big piece of metal, as it gets close to the runway, will bend the beam that we are using to land with. And so when they're going to apply low-vis low procedures to allow us to land on autopilot, they have to make sure that everything around the airport is quarantined much, much further back from the runway, which means that the airport gets to run at half speed, and they don't like that. Places like Heathrow, where they're firing off an aeroplane every minute and they're landing them every every two or three minutes, they don't, they don't like having to go to low-vis procedures. No. So they'll get the pilots to do the last 200 feet manually. I see. Hopefully that answers your question for you, Linda. I love this question that's come through from Paul from Warnable. He says, if on a long-haul flight somebody dies, what do they do with the body? Yes, well, uh, a previous airline that I work for who has a record of killing more people than anyone else in the world, <gasps> purely because we give great deals to um, pensioners to go back to the old country. (laughs) So so they go back to the old country in summer after leaving a nice cold Melbourne winter Mm -hmm. and their grandchildren take them around England for two weeks in the back of a back of a Ford Fiesta with no air conditioning and remember there's no air conditioning in that whole country and then they put the poor old people back on the plane again and they fall asleep on the way home and never wake up. Oh my goodness, so what do you do There are special procedures and we do have body bags. Um, Sometimes uh, you'll have a passenger who looks like he's asleep with a blanket over him. Um, That's pretty rare. I mean, in my experience, I've never had anyone die on one of my flights but I I think um, my old airline had one or two a year um, if you do that, they, it depends if they've just died in their seat or if they've died, died as a result of a medical procedure. Mm. And people go get sick quite often in these long flights, mm. especially when they leave their medication in their suitcase and they don't bring it on the aeroplane with them and we can't get them their drugs. So we can, call up, we can call up on a satellite phone to a company called Medlink in Nevada and with the help of a doctor on the aeroplane, we could administer drugs to help them. But if we say we're working on someone with a heart attack and they die, uh, well, then they're not in their seat 
there on the floor somewhere in the galley or wherever they're working on the person, and then they've got a body bag procedure for them. Oh, my goodness, it's awful just thinking about that. I've always been amazed when I've been on flights and someone's unwell and they put the call out, they say, if there are any medically trained people on board, can you make yourself known to the crew? And there always is. There's always a doctor or at least a nurse. But have you been on flights where there's just no one and the most useful person is, say, a confectioner? <laughs> yes, yes, we've had a few of them, but usually there is somebody, and we go down the list. We go for a, a nurse, and then we go for a paramedic, because uh, it's really the paramedic skills that you need. Mm. Uh, my sister's a doctor; she's a dermatologist, and she was just on a flight from from um, uh, Canada to Melbourne the other day, and she had to to uh, work on a patient for most of the way. But um, we probably go for someone who's a, a, a nurse or a paramedic. And there's always someone like that. But, of course, the cabin crew in a good airline, and that's when you're talking before the news about how you choose a good airline. You choose a good airline because they've got Tempest medical equipment, they've got a doctor's kit, and the cabin crew are licensed and can work with Medlink. Now, my previous airline did, and that's the reason I use them as a passenger, because if you're going to have a heart attack, you want to be started up again. Without a defibrillator, the chances of being restarted are about 8%. Do not all flights carry defibrillators? Not at all. And it's amazing the number of airlines that don't have very good systems. In fact, uh, my sister the other day on that Canadian airline, they didn't even call Medlink. So she was um, she was without any help, without any, any drugs. So oh, so stressful. she was working on the patient by herself, and that's a fairly top airline. So it, you really want to find out, especially if you've got a medical condition, you've got to make sure you've got your doctor's letters and you've got to take your drugs with you on board the aircraft. Mm. Moving on, <laughs> this is something I was going to ask myself. Someone has texted it in. Pilots and hosties, do pilots really get the ladies? Well, we used to. Up until 1997, at Ansett, I had a fantastic life. <laughs> and it's probably why I'm still a bachelor. <clears throat> what what However, changed in 1997? In 1997, I met my first heterosexual male cabin crew. And, uh, and now all the cabin crew are more interested in the guys with the uh, six-pack abs who are also cabin crew about the same age group. Oh. Because there's uh, a lot more... Um, <clears throat> talent for them. In fact, in, in my last company, I was at least 20 years old, older than uh, any of my cabin crew. And uh, so that doesn't really last, doesn't really work. But uh, yes, of course, there are people who get together, especially the younger ones. And it's mainly the same as a doctor and a nurse situation, because sleeping is the biggest problem you've got when you're a, when you're a pilot or a nurse or a doctor. Trying to get sleep, adequate sleep, is so difficult. It really helps if someone understands the shift work that you're doing, mm. which is why police marry police and doctors marry nurses and, and so teachers forth. marry each other as well. Oh, there yeah. you go. We're speaking with James Nixon. He's a recently retired captain of um, the A380 aircraft, Emirates. He's answering everything you've ever wanted to know about flying. Don't be shy. If you have a question, you can call and ask him on 1300 303 468 or text 0467 842 um, just staying on that sort of lowbrow stuff, the Mile High Club, I mean, I've been lucky enough to do my fair share of flying and I've never witnessed anything that gave me any evidence that that happens. Does it actually happen? Deb, you would not believe... And every cabin crew says, I'm going to write a book. Now, I am an author. I've written five books and uh, got lots more to write. But every cabin crew says, I'm going to write a book about this because the stuff we have seen in aeroplanes will curl your hair. And, uh, yes, we've... uh, 
we've uh, had lots of experience with passengers trying to join the Mile High Club. Mind you, um, <clears throat> an aircraft toilet, oh, crikey, you know, the stuff I've also seen in aircraft toilets makes me want to keep away from them in terms of anything intimate. Right, yeah, they're not particularly pleasant places to be. I've always thought, I don't really understand the attraction there, but... Hey, different strokes, different folks. <laughs> this question's come through from Fifi. She says, on a long-haul flight, what does a pilot's sleep routine look like? Uh, what's the longest stretch without sleep and how much time is there between two long-haul flights? Right. Well, um, there's long-haul and ultra-long-haul. So ultra-long-haul is the ones that uh, the reason I retired because I just got sick of doing 17-hour flights. Uh, my record for doing two pilots alone is about 13 hours, 45 minutes. From, um, from Dubai to Dakar and Senegal. And then I've done 17 hours, 45 minutes to Dallas, Texas, from Dubai as well. And, and for those, that's another way to choose a good airline. You want an airline that uses two sets of crews, two pilots, two captains and two first officers, rather than other airlines that just have one captain, one first officer and two, one or two second officers. Second officers can't land the plane. They can just fly in the crews. So um, you want to choose an airline that's got two complete crews so that when you hand over to the other crew, then you can actually get some sleep in the little bunk because you're not worried about the decisions being made in the cockpit. So when you've got a flight that lasts for 17 hours, the primary crew will fly it halfway across and the secondary crew, after 10 minutes, they'll go into the to the crew rest compartment about 10 minutes after takeoff, once they pass 10,000 feet. And they all sleep in there for half the flight, less an hour. So the primary crew are going to be back in the seat for about an hour before landing. And so you get a long sleep, you get about eight hours, but it's in a bunk. So it's very uncomfortable because you can't really sit up and watch movies and stuff. You've mm-hmm. really got to try and sleep. I'm sure that's a skill that you just develop with time in the industry though, right? Well, I became so good at it, I wrote a book about it because we had so many people who can't get to grips with sleeping. So if you want to be a flight attendant or a pilot and you get a a long-haul flying job but you can't get to grips with sleeping whenever you need to, you can't stay in the business for more than a year or two because you just get physically exhausted all the time. But I think that's a great life skill for anyone. I'm sure there's lots of people that... Well, I know there's lots of people that have trouble sleeping, so we'll be sure to check that out. Um, Yes. Uh, another quick one. What's the weirdest thing someone has tried to bring on as hand luggage on one of your flights? Uh, animals. They, well, they, see, the thing in America, uh, there's so many lawyers running around in America that they obviously educate and they need to get work. So they sue everybody. And so in America, they, they call them companion animals. And uh, they'll bring on pretty much any animal and say, oh, this is my companion animal that you know, helps me when I get stressed. And, of course, everywhere else in the world doesn't believe a word of it. But if you're flying into America, you really have to be careful and you can't knock them back. So I did have a lady that brought um, a a very noisy dog on a plane in Milan to go to New New York City. And you just can't knock them back. And she said that this little dog, which fitted in a handbag, um, this dog, without this dog, she gets too stressed out to fly. Um, Um. Wow, there you go. Um, Lynn from Ararat is on the line. What would you like to ask James, Lynn? Um, hello, James. Um, as a fairly frequent traveller overseas, I'm very interested in hearing what you're saying. Um, you, you mentioned about the, the 
uh, airlines that have the changing crews on long-haul flights. How do we know that to, when we're looking to book a, a flight, a long-haul flight? Yes, well, that is the question. And uh, really, you've got to contact the airline, I'd say, or the travel agent and get the travel agent to get you an answer for that. Um, but places like, um, well, I know Cathay have second offices, so do Qantas. I'm pretty sure Air France does. Uh, but uh, the Middle Eastern carriers use two sets of crew. Um, and people like Singapore and that, you'd have to have to check with the airline. There you go, Lynn. Hopefully that answers your question. I've got another one through on the text line. This one's from Barb. It says, why do they dim the lights for takeoff and landing? That's so the cabin crew can uh, acclimatise their eyes to dark adaptment. So what they're going to do is when the plane crashes, they are going to run down the centre of the cabin uh, and look out over the wings to, to man the middle exits. And if you run down through an airline, through an airliner, you wouldn't, it's hard to believe this, but if you actually run down, it, you can actually see outside quite well because the, the rate that you're running and the, the, the rate that you're passing the windows so that you can look out and see if there's anything wrong with the wings or if an exit is going to be usable or unusable. So that's why they do it, to dark adapt their eyes uh, so that they can, if there is an emergency, that they can act in the dark. There you go. I always thought it was something to do with conserving energy, so I was way off. Um, Sharon's yeah. online. She's just got a quick one. Sharon from Ballarat, what would you like to ask? Oh, good morning. Um, James, I'm just wondering which of your your five books is the one about helping people sleep? Mark, the a producer, apologises. He, he's got it, but he can't remember the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, you can go to jamesnixon.com and have a look at all my books, but um, it's Sleeping for Pilots and Cabin Crew and Other Insomniacs. There you go. Thanks for that, Sharon. Um, oh, we better wrap up. I'm having so much fun, but I'm just looking at the <laughs> clock and thinking it's getting away from us. Quick text question from Ray. He says, do pilots enjoy first-class meals or the cardboard box selection? In fact, I do. A, a, I talk to clubs and I show all the pictures, so the best photos that you can get from an A380 cockpit. It's called the Top 150, and it's off my website. You can have a look at the photos. Every day there's a new one. <clears throat> and I'm saving for the last few pages uh, a, a beautiful first-class meal that was presented and it's sitting on my tray uh, that looks like that, that's what pilots get all the time. No, it's not. Pilots get their own pilot food. One says captain, the other one says first officer. They're in, in aluminium trays, and they're made in separate kitchens by separate cooks and there's nothing very palatable about them. But every now and then, if you're retiring, a first-class cabin crew might feel nice enough to make you a special first-class meal. It's very rare. And why do you get separate meals? So that you don't get food poisoning. Oh, so the yes, meals you're are both not out at the separate, same time. That's correct. They're made wow. in separate kitchens by separate chefs, and they are completely separate. Oh, my goodness. James, this has been fascinating. My pleasure. I'm going to get in trouble if I keep going. But, um, yeah, we'll have to get you on again, I think, and answer people's questions because we do have more questions coming in. Thanks so much for giving us your time. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Deb. James Nixon there, uh, retired A380 captain for Emirates, answering all your questions. Um, it's pretty interesting, hey? You're on ABC Local Radio. You're listening to ABC Ballarat and Southwest Victoria.